Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In our Crime Scenes edition of Arts Express this week, with the bombing just now of a U.S. military base in Jordan that Jordan insists took place rather on a base in illegally occupied Syria, Pacifica host Garland Nixon is on the case as to the self-serving weaponization of words and the connection of fascism to the criminal enterprise U.S. protection racket known as their nearly 800 military bases on occupied land around the world. Hi, Garland Nixon here. And, you know, this uh, this term fascism is always thrown around. We've got to save America because Trump will bring in fascism. Biden's a fascist. Everybody's a fascist and nobody's a fascist. Let's talk. You know, I was just thinking about this whole, the issue of fascism, right? It's a term that is thrown around. And to many people, to a lot of people I've noticed, here's what it means. It's like uh, some people use the word communism, fascism, whatever. And they say that those the, that's communism, that's fascism, that's into a lot of people. Sadly, and unfortunately, what those terms mean are something that I don't like, somebody that I don't like, something that's scary, something I don't understand, something that's bad, something that's evil, et cetera, et cetera. And the truth is, the matter is this particularly in America, I find that about 99.999% of the people that call people communists have no idea what communism is. And the same goes for fascism. The only thing they know is, um, let's see, the Nazis. Uh, so everybody I don't like is a Nazi, right? And not even understanding this. If you use the word democracy, what does that mean? Are there more than one types of democracy? Is there a republic? Is there a, demo is there a, a, a bottom up democracy? Is there a, uh, a, a parliamentary system? Oh, no, no, there's different types of democracies, right? There's the illusion of democracy as opposed to actually the practice of democracy, right? Then if we talk about socialism, communism, what does it really mean? Most people that say that have no idea, like call other people these terms, in a pejorative manner, in a negative manner, don't even know what they mean. They just it, something I don't like. Joe Biden's a communist. He's far left and far right. You know, the thing I re recall, and that was Wikipedia at one time, referred to the gray zone as a far left and a far right website at the same time. It is both. It's far left and far right, which goes to show something. What were they saying from their perspective if it was far left and far right? What they were really saying is this. We consider our brand of thought, the mainstream thought, right? This is to us, to those people who are writing that, right? Our brand of, of thought, the way we see the world is the acceptable way to see the world. Anyone who sees the world difference or argues for a different ideological position, right, is an extremist. What difference does it make if you call them far left or far right? They're an extremist because they are not aligned with our our method of seeing the world, our way of explaining things. So Max Blumenthal, you can call him far right, you can call him far left, it doesn't mean anything except I hate him. There are people, you're a communist, this guy's a communist, Joe Biden's a communist, right? That, and clearly, if they think Joe Biden's a communist, you have no understanding what communism is or socialism is, right? And most people, uh, uh, you've got the people, the uh, Biden supporting people, we can't let Trump in. Why? Because he's going to bring in uh, Nazism. Uh, he's going to bring in national socialism. He's bring on, bring, going to bring in fascism. Let's talk about it a little bit. Mo most, most of the things that I find in our society, people that call other people fascism, it's simply self-serving. If you're a conservative, then the people that disagree with you, well, those lefties are a bunch of fascists. If you're a lefty person, and then those right-wingers are, are clearly fascists, right? Most of the time, it's just a self-serving argument that means people that I don't agree with or disagree with me strongly in a lot of areas are fascists. Let's talk about a couple of things that I think are fundamental to fascism. One of them is a commitment to war. Now, based on that, look at the Biden administration right now. Could there be a greater commitment to war than the Biden administration right now? Okay, what's going on? They deliberately started a war in Ukraine. Deliberately started. The government was overthrown by Biden and the very people that are in an office with him, right? 
And they, upon immediately upon overthrowing the government, they began to prepare Ukraine for a war with its gigantic neighbor in some dream world where uh, Ukraine could defeat a country 28 times bigger than itself, right? This is so we're going to prepare you to fight your neighbor. Your neighbor is 28 times your size. You know, I, that, I can say that for, for a number of reasons, not the least of which being resources alone, that wasn't a good situation for Ukraine, but the war wasn't designed for Ukraine, right? Ukraine was the cannon fodder. U Ukraine was to be sacrificed at the, at the altar of uh, the neoconservative ideology, which I'm going to continue to argue is a fascist ideology, right? That commitment to war. So what you have is you have a bunch of people who basically see the world as um, something to be conquered. They see two types of countries. They see, number one, countries that they've conquered. How can you tell they've conquered countries? Look at Germany. How can you tell they've conquered Germany? It's full of bases. It, when you conquer a country, if you're a fascist, if you're a, a, a whatever you want to term you want to use, you're going to conquer a country, you're going to fill it with bases. That way you've got it under control. You've got your military people walking around. There's nothing they can do. Uh, Korea loaded with bases. Philippines loaded with U.S. bases. Japan loaded with U.S. bases. If you want to see the countries that are the most controlled by the U.S. empire, count the bases. The ones with the most bases, is that, that's what you're going to see because bases are bases of occupation. They will claim they're bases of assistance and protection, but they're not. They're occupation, right? So fascism has a commitment to war. That's it. A commitment to war. So therefore, when you occupy countries, right, like a, like a, 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 a role, you occupy a Germany, you occupy a Philippines, you occupy these countries. Those occupations are A, to control the country and B, to use as imperial outposts for furthering your war interests, for advancing your war. Here's the example right now. What is the U.S. doing in Korea? They're setting Korea up to be the next Ukraine. Hey, South Korea, we're going to load you up with bases and we're going to set you to fight North Korea, to fight China, to fight whoever. We're going to use you as cannon fodder. Philippines, loading you up with bases to fight China. Japan, loading you up with bases to fight China, right? What is it? These countries have been conquered and now they are to be, their populations, et cetera, are to be sacrificed. And the ruling elite in those countries, unless something happens that they're overthrown or whatever, the ruling elite is just going to act on behalf of the fascist occupying power. So that commitment to war is inextricably linked to the occupations of the conquered nations. So there are countries that are being conquered, the countries that have yet to be conquered, because that's the only kind of countries there are to the fascist occupation, to the fascist uh, expansionist war-making country. The countries that have been conquered are then utilized to expand your empire and to attack the countries that haven't been conquered. All you have to do is look at who are the enemies of the United States. China, they got an independent foreign policy. Russia, independent foreign policy. All over South America, they want independence. Africa wants independence. So we've got bases all over Africa. They have natural resources and they desire independence. That Those two things must be stopped. Right. So the U.S. is utilizing its, ex its expanse of bases to reach out and touch the countries that it wants to conquer. So it's going after these countries and these countries. The, other th the bottom line is these countries are now saying it's so blatantly obvious what you're doing that we're going to band together. We have no choice but to band together to defend ourselves. And a, co a commitment to more where that's obvious right now. The U.S. has destabilized North Korea, destabilized the entire uh, Pacific region in their confronting, deterring China, right? They destabilize Europe and they're impoverishing the Europeans and they're moved to destabilize and deter Russia, right? And of course, they've got wars going like crazy in the Middle East, heating up, you know, getting hotter and hotter and hotter. I would argue that the resistance forces there are controlling the speed of the escalation. But bottom line is this, they're on the brink of war in China and in, in Asia, in Korea, in Russia, in the Middle East, they're either involved in wars or on the, in, on the brink of wars, which means what? Which means the commitment to war of the United States, of its uh, ruling elite, has never been greater. 
because the commitment to war right now is part of the ideological expression of the Biden administration and of the, how they see America, right? It is who, here's a perfect example. I had a professor once that said, how do you spell commitment? How do you spell commitment? M-O-N-E-Y. You want to know where somebody's committed? See where their money is. Anybody ever have in life a, a girlfriend that says, I have, I'm broke, I have no money. Oh my God, look at those shoes. Here's my credit card or any woman out there ever have a husband or a boyfriend that says, dude, dude, I mean, it says, you know, hey, babe, uh, I'm broke. I can't afford this or that. Oh, 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 look at that fishing rod. Hey, where's my credit card? Right. The bottom line is this. They will show you where they're committed. They can't afford this, that or that. But all of a sudden there's a new fishing rod. Guilty. All of a sudden there's a new fishing rod. They'll do whatever they got to do to get that fishing rod. All that's demonstrating. It's not about men or women. All it's all it's uh or the other 37 genders I think we got in this country. Uh, but it's about in reality, it is about people showing you where they're committed to. Right now, let's go on. Where's your commitment? Right? M-O, how do you spell commitment? M-O-N-E-Y. Right now, one of the issues. Of, uh, in America. One of the political problems that the ruling elite has is that the people are starting to ask questions, right? That the person's asking questions. Here's the questions. The wife says to the husband, hey, the kids uh, need money for school. Um, we need food. Uh, we, the plaster's falling off of this room. We got to fix this room. Um, and you're spending all of our money up on fishing new fishing rod. You just bought a $500 fishing rod. You just put a new engine on the back of your boat that costs $10,000. You did, and, and their house is falling apart and the kids need clothes and blah, 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 right? And it is now, what has happened is there is a contradiction, right? There is the commitment of this guy to his fishing and fun and what he wants, but there is the accountability and responsibility that he's got a family and that they need things. And now you have the contradiction. And now the wife and kids, the kids are looking at him like this, dad, right? The wife's looking at him like this. You better get your act together, sonny boy, right? Everybody's angry at him because they see a glaring contradiction. His commitment does not align with the needs of the family, right? Or it could happen with a woman, whoever, you get the point, right? Okay, that's what the fascists in America are having. The problem is their commitment. What do they say? We got to build a new $500 billion B1B bomber. We've got to upgrade our nuclear deterrent. That's going to cost a trillion dollars. Uh, we've got to build bases right now. And coming up next on Arts Express, Kathy Kleiner Rubin the sole survivor of the notorious Ted Bundy massacre of her female dorm classmates in Florida, has just detailed the horrors of her ordeal and determination to survive and prevail in her memoir, A Light in the Dark. Rubin delves into all of this and more, including the difficult journey to once again trust men emotionally, romantically, and sexually that has something to do with, well, her subsequent search for masculine appeal among lumberjacks. First, a little about her memoir, then Kathy Kleiner Rubin. Ted Bundy, the notorious serial killer who murdered at least 30 women. We've all heard of him, but Kathy Kleiner Rubin. That night, um, it was about three o'clock in the morning. Survived him. He came into the sorority. He went to the first door and attacked Margaret Bowman. January 1978, Kathy asleep in her sorority house. And in just seconds. I did wake up and I was gurgling, making all these sounds, but I was just not making any noise because my throat and my tongue were almost bit off and mm. I couldn't talk with my jaw broken in three places. Bundy changed her life. He'd already murdered two of her sorority sisters and likely had plans to do the same to her. But that's when a car pulled up outside the headlights saved her life. The lights in our room, he saw it. He thought he was seen. He got real spooked and ran out the door. Hence, A Light in the Dark, her new book meant to give voice to all the victims. Mainly it's for all the other victims that he was he killed and now are unable to speak. And most of all, Kathy hopes to get the focus off of Bundy and squarely on the power of survivors. I think uh, in the beginning, the media contacted Bundy and showed him as um, a handsome man that couldn't have done this. They didn't see the horns or the devil face that he actually hid from other people. Hello. Hi, 
Good morning. Good morning. Hello, and welcome to our show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay. Now, okay. <laughs> now, your memoir is recognized as the only one to challenge the popular narrative of Bundy as a, a handsome killer who charmed his victims into trusting him. Please talk about why that was important to you to expose and that, quote, he has become a legend and our voices have been muted or ignored. It's time we were heard. Yes. Yes, um, that was something that has bothered me um, ever since the attack, that he was portrayed as something good-looking and nice and fun, and it was so untrue. He was a monster. He was a monster at heart and by soul, and he would kill women, and he wanted to keep their bodies, I mean their souls with him. He was a soul collector. He would kill them. He would mutilate them. He would cut their head off. He would do terrible things to them and then leave them to dead. These women never went to him, never asked to be attacked, never asked to be anything for him. He attacked them in their beds at night. That was his M.O. He was never challenged. He wouldn't have handled being challenged by anyone. He was such a loser. And he was such a, a person that couldn't control himself but then couldn't be held responsible for what he did. And these women were attacked in their bed at night when they slept. And then he took them to the woods, and he would do things to them that were horrible. He would keep them. He actually put makeup on them and violated them again. Mm. He was so sick at that point. No women really went to him. The only two women that we can find were two that went hitchhiking. And back in the 70s, that was very common to have anybody go hitchhiking and it was safe considered at that time. And what do you feel it is about our culture that would give rise to such a sexist distortion of the facts when it comes to male violence against women? I think that most of them look like everyday people. You know, most of the serial killers don't have horns and, and mugs and everything that looks like, oh, this could be a serial killer. And they blend into society as best they can. And for them to streak out, stick out, and really attack someone so brutal, uh, brutally, brutally, that it was, it was amazing that they are portrayed in such a good fashion. And I think Ted Bundy was one of the first where the trial was actually live. And during that time, he was shown, and, and never was he really shown to be an ugly person until they had photos, photos of little Kimberly Leach and photos of Margaret and Lisa Bowman the two women that were killed in my sorority house that night when he attacked me and my, and my roommate. And how do you feel writing your memoir has helped you survive such terrible trauma emotionally and psychologically and be able to then again trust a male relationship? I have survived because I wanted to survive. I needed to survive. I know when I was 13, I was diagnosed with lupus and I had to take chemo and lost all my hair was homebound and could only look out and see people walk by, but never had I had a chance to have anyone inside. So this was something I knew I would get better at. I didn't want to live with lupus. I didn't want to feel that way. Then after the attack, I found that I was not scared, but I was uncomfortable to be around men I didn't know. And I didn't want to live like that either. So after my wire, my mouth was wired shut, my jaw, for nine weeks, and after I became, um, it opened up again, I wanted to be somewhere where I could not be afraid of men. So I went to work at a lumber yard. And I was a cashier then. And I could see as many men as I wanted to. And I knew they all weren't going to hurt me. I didn't know them, and I wasn't afraid of them. So I worked at the lumber yard for a couple of weeks. And then I quit because I knew that wasn't going to be my lasting job that I wanted to do forever. And I learned one thing. There are a lot of cute men that work construction mm -hmm. that go into lumber yards. So I got over my fear of men, and I also learned where all the cute construction workers were. Mm -hmm. So this is another way I got through what I needed to to get better. And do you have any thoughts about why females, the largest victimized group in the world, are the only such group not protected by a federal hate crime statute? 
I think it was so, so common. There's so many women out there, and there's so many men. There's not a lot of men, but there's so many that want to hurt women. And it should be a hate crime, but for so long it's considered a crime of passion that it's not considered a hate crime because these women, women they feel, were allowing themselves to be attacked, were allowing themselves to be vulnerable, which is so not true, so not true. Most of these women were in their bed at night, and a lot of women were walking the street being where they should be, walking back from school, walking from a library. So I don't think these women's hate case was more than just a desire of a crazed serial killer. Mm. And how do you feel your memoir can help other women delving into your own horrible experience and what you hope to convey to your female readers? I went through a lot, and I know each time when I had lupus and survived, I knew it was within me to go through survival and to want to I didn't want to live in a little box and with no windows. I was, I was over that. I lived one year at home. But I was ready to go out and to spread, spread my life out and to see what else was out there. I wanted to run and see and jump every hurdle I could because I just knew there would be something better on the other side. And then when I was diagnosed with breast cancer at 34 and I had chemo again, it was just something that this was not going to be a part of me. This is not what I was going to live for. And I really wanted to live for people around me. I had put them through so much with the traumas I went through that I wanted them to feel better. I wanted to feel better for them. And I just think that by hearing this and, and touching on different areas that someone may feel something that they can't go through, but they can. If you pull that strength out that's within yourself, you pull it out and you lean on it. Like, I can't have a good day today. Yes, you can. Just tell yourself you can and hold that strength, and tomorrow's going to be a better day. And what advice would you give to other women to protect themselves in such potential situations? My first thought is that women are on the phones so much. They walk, they fall off a curb, they don't see what they're doing because they're on their stupid phones. And you don't know who's behind you. You don't know your surroundings. You don't know who's in front of you. And this person may be there to harm you. I remember I lived in New Orleans for 18 years. And as I would walk my face in my phone, I would feel uncomfortable. So I'd stop and I'd lean against the wall that was next to me. And I'd let this person walk in front of me. I wasn't going to be a challenge to anyone. I didn't want anyone to come up from behind. So I turned around and waited for them to pass and looked them in the eyes, and then I was in control again. Mm. So I think women need to be aware of their surroundings, where they are, and understand that they're bad people out there. And not all of them are going to hurt them, but they should be aware of some that night. Mm. Okay, thank you so much for calling into our show, and I will get the word out about your memoir. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy, is published by Abe Books. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. One of our favorite political commentators is Caitlin Johnstone, and we featured her work on our show several times. She has been a steadfast beacon of moral clarity 
in a world where the obvious is so often ignored and where propaganda reigns. Her work ranges from biting satire to poetry to incisive essays. So, along with our great Arts Express friend of the show, Mary Murphy, actor and voiceover artist extraordinaire, we'd like to present two recent pieces written by Caitlin Johnstone. I'm not going to say too much more about them as the pieces speak for themselves. Anne and Joe argue about the child's killing murder robots by Caitlin Johnstone. I'm not so sure about the child-killing murder robot, Joe said after a sip of coffee while reading the morning paper. What? His wife Anne exclaimed, visibly shocked. It's killed thousands of kids in the latest murder rampage, Joe said. I'm starting to think maybe the child-killing murder robot isn't such a great thing after all. Well, of course it's on a murder rampage, said Anne. Some people tried to turn it off. Yeah, the child-killing murder robot does that whenever anyone tries to turn it off, replied Joe. And you know what? I'm starting to think that maybe they're trying to turn off the child-killing murder robot because they're sick of the way it keeps killing children and murdering people. It's acting in self-defense, Anne protested. The child-killing murder robot has a right to defend itself. It's been killing people constantly, ever since that team of mad scientists invented it back in the 40s, Anne. And after a certain amount of child-killing and murder, eventually you got to figure that maybe the blame is on the child-killing murder robot. At the very least, I think, Our government should stop sending it batteries and ammunition. Look, Joe, I feel terrible about all the child killing and murder, and I wish it wasn't happening. But this is a very complicated situation. It's been going on for many years. And I just don't see what you could possibly expect the child killing murder robot to do at this point, besides continue to kill large numbers of children and commit murder at mass scale. Well, maybe they could reprogram the child killing murder robot so it doesn't have to kill children and murder people all the time. But then it wouldn't be a child killing murder robot. Yeah, I know. It would be a different sort of thing with a different sort of system. But at least then all the murdering would stop and we'd have peace. The child-killing murder robot has a right to exist. Why, Anne? Why? Why does there absolutely need to be a homicidal android that's always in the news because it's constantly murdering human beings? I've seen people talking about one possible solution where the robot is programmed to regard everyone else as its equal so it doesn't view them as needing to be murdered. Why couldn't we try that? There is one child-killing murder robot in the world, Joe. One. And you're saying there should be zero. You just want to commit genocide. That's the exact opposite of what I want. How can you say that? If you don't believe the child-killing murder robot has a right to exist in its natural, child-killing murderous state, then you're an evil, genocidal racist. You're no better than those kids chanting nobody should be murdered on university campuses. And those students are demonstrating to defend the rights of a population who's constantly getting murdered by a mindless automaton with machine guns for arms. They're genocidal fascist, Joe. I'm not saying I support 100% of the actions of the child-killing murder robot. But at least it's not going around college campuses saying things that make people feel uncomfortable. Call me crazy. 
But I just don't accept that making people feel uncomfortable is equal to or worse than murdering children by the thousands. You are crazy, Joe. You are a crazy, hateful man. I'm going to spend the night at my sister's. God, I can't believe I married a Nazi. And now, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. Let me be clear. The United States is not seeking to uphold this rules-based order to keep other nations down. To keep other nations down. To keep other nations down. The Rules-Based International Order by Caitlin Johnstone. The Rules-Based International Order has allowed the incineration of Gaza and the bombing of Yemeni forces who are trying to stop it. The rules-based international order allowed hundreds of thousands of people to be killed by Western-backed Saudi atrocities in Yemen. The rules-based international order allowed NATO powers to knowingly provoke a world-threatening proxy war in Ukraine. The rules-based international order allowed Western powers and their regional partners to plunge Syria into a horrific civil war by flooding the nation with heavily armed fascistic extremist factions. The rules-based international order has allowed the U.S. to invade and occupy a vast stretch of Syrian territory in order to control the nation's natural resources and prevent reconstruction. The rules-based international order allowed Libya to be turned into a chaotic hellscape after Western-backed forces killed Gaddafi following a long-desired Western regime change operation disguised as humanitarian intervention. The rules-based international order allowed the invasion of Iraq to destabilize an entire region resulting in millions of deaths following a campaign of deliberate lies and propaganda. The rules-based international order allowed the invasion of Afghanistan and a decades-long occupation sustained by lies and corruption. The rules-based international order allowed the imprisonment of Julian Assange for journalistic activities exposing U.S. war crimes. The rules-based international order has allowed the planet to be circled by hundreds of U.S. military bases, including in places where the people who live there vehemently oppose their presence, like Okinawa, Iraq, and Syria. The rules-based international order has allowed the U.S. and its allies to kill huge numbers of civilians with siege warfare tactics in nations like Yemen, Iraq, and Venezuela. The rules-based international order has allowed the U.S. to interfere in scores of elections around the world at will and forcibly topple inconvenient governments whenever it wants to. The rules-based international order has allowed China to be surrounded by a rapidly increasing amount of U.S. military bases and war machinery in preparation for a future conflict of unimaginable horror. The rules-based international order has allowed the U.S. to plunge the world into a new Cold War with rapidly escalating brinkmanship against nuclear-armed Russia and China. The rules-based international order has allowed our civilization to be controlled by the most powerful propaganda system ever devised creating a mind-controlled dystopia of brainwashed gear-turners who are deceived into believing they are free. The rules-based international order has allowed unfathomable amounts of government malfeasance to be hidden behind an increasingly opaque wall of government secrecy. The rules-based international order 
has allowed the interest of ordinary human beings to be subordinated and subjected to the interest of billionaire corporations and sociopathic government agencies. The rules-based international order has allowed the destruction of our ecosystem for the enrichment of powerful plutocrats. The rules-based international order has allowed our planet to be dominated by an empire of extreme murderousness and depravity at the cost of nonstop bloodshed and ever-increasing tyranny. If the rules-based international order has allowed all these things to happen, what kind of rules are we talking about exactly? And what kind of order do they sustain? If this is what the rules-based international order looks like, would we not, perhaps, be better off without it? You've been listening to Two Pieces by Caitlin Johnstone, Anne and Joe Argue About the Child-Killing Murder Robot, and The Rules-Based Order, performed by myself and Mary Murphy. Thanks to Mary especially for doing this in a time of such censorship. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And up next on the program, in our Crime Scenes edition of Arts Express, Brett Gregory at our UK desk in a conversation on the horrors in history, folk tales, and movies. Hi, this is the UK desk for Prairie Miller's Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. Even before the suicidal insanity of Brexit, the UK has always been regarded by the wider world as a very posh, very violent and very strange country, out of place and out of time, lost in its own history, locked inside one of its own dungeons. Indeed, to acquire some sort of insight into the oddity of our people, our customs and our belief systems, one only needs to watch four films. The Witchfinder General from 1968, the unsung classic Cry of the Banshee from 1970, Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971, and, of course, The Wicker Man from 1973. I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood. I am here to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. Where is Rowan Morrison? If Rowan Morrison existed, we would know. I suspect murder. Sergeant, I've already told... In the name of God, woman, what kind of mother are you? That can stand by and see your own child slaughtered? You are the fool, Mr. Harry. You are liars. You are despicable little liars. Where is Rowan Morrison? If Rowan Morrison existed, we would know. I suspect murder. She was... You are the fool, Mr. Where is Rowan Morrison? Oh, my God! Hi there, Brett. It's really nice to be here, and thanks very much for inviting me to speak to your listeners at Arts Express. My name is Louis Bayman, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Film Studies at the University of Southampton here in the UK. Many thanks for lending us your time, Louis. So, folk horror. British cinema, and in fact television, in the late 1960s and 1970s, contributed many of what's now recognised as being the classics of folk horror. Um, the folk horror scholar Dawn Keatley, in fact, points out that most horror can in some way find its traces back in tales around the campfire, in folk lore, in myths and legends, uh, that were particularly popular 
back in the earlier kinds of periods which folk horror often represents. And what about its cultural history? There had been an interest in folklore and the folkloric past, at least since the Victorian times. Uh, James Fraser and the Golden Bough, actually uh, not a really particularly scholarly reliable compendium of uh, supposed pagan practices, but nevertheless one that was enormously influential on popular modern understandings of what might have existed before modernity in Britain. We're interested in looking back at the societies that we feel that we've supplanted, as well, of course, as looking forward to the society that we may wish to become in the future. Fascinating. Unlike most other film genres, folk horror is very much seated in British history, its internal conflicts and its desire for self-destruction. Folk horror stages times of social crisis. So Witchfinder General um, is set in the 1640s during the English Revolution. Blood on Satan's Claw is set in the very early 18th century, again in England, and um, there's frequent reference made to the Jacobite rebellions, which were ongoing at the time. And then there's also a film called Cry of the Banshee from 1970, which was set in Elizabethan England. Who spurs the beast the corpse will ride? Who cries the cry that kills? When Satan questioned, who replied? Whence blows this wind that chills? What if there is a power that we know nothing of? Edgar Allan Poe probes new depths of terror. Vincent Price reaches new heights of horror. H is for heretic. I know nothing of witchcraft. When Satan questions, who replies? Whence blows this wind that chills? What answers when the banshee cries? These are films that are squarely about Britain itself and British history and can't simply be solved by a group of peasants with pitchforks chasing after Frankenstein's monster. There's an important class element here as well because the Gothic tends to be set in the castles of barons and counts. There's a whole other history about how the Gothic is a product of a modern England which is going through the Industrial Revolution, capitalist liberalism, but looking anxiously back on the aristocratic past that it hasn't entirely left behind. However, what you get with folk horror is much more of a concentration on the peasantry, which of course made up the vast bulk of the population. What's distinctive about folk horror though? What separates it and, in my opinion, elevates it beyond other horror subgenres? Whereas in the traditional Gothic, you might have vampires, werewolves, other kinds of ghouls that threaten the community from outside. In folk horror, what's distinctive is that it is the community itself that is the source of violence, of anguish and fear. In folk horror, it's civilization itself which is the problem. It's belief systems, systems of ritual, systems of punishment and justice, which are actually particularly threatening. So it's not a fear of savagery, but actually of customs, of lifestyles, of arable agricultural land rather than the wilderness that we might associate with the sublime of the Gothic. And it's a fear of a particular form of education and social development. Fears of how what is totemic for one society could be taboo for another. I remember sitting in the living room in the 1980s and watching Psychomania on the television, hypnotised by its premise that with a little bit of witchcraft and self-belief, suicide and death were just the beginning. However, these topics of teenage interest in our current happy-clappy corporate culture are now seemingly verboten. What I think is most radical is that folk horror removes any sense of there being a stable set of values at all, or any normative social order. 
both traditional society, uh, pagan or cult worship, and modernity are all shown to be equally mad. In The Wicker Man, Howie's Christianity is just one form of ritual fanaticism, which removed from the uh, social structures that give it meaning um, and give it force, seems perhaps uh, to be just as ridiculous as the veneration of the old gods of the pagan community that uh, he finds himself among. So I think that folk horror, actually what's most disturbing about it is the way that it points to how some societies and belief systems actively engage in ritual sacrifice. Other forms of social organisation might engage in pauperization, in the enclosures of the land, in persecution of heresy. And our adherence to one or another of those belief systems is not based on their fundamental rightness, but is based simply on accidents of history. The things that we find right and proper are considered by people from other cultures as horrific, and vice versa. When the grave of the devil is disturbed by the plough, the satanic essence of evil wreaks violent and revolting revenge. But it weren't human, sir. There were a fur. Then it was an animal's remains. It were more like some fiend. And the evil grows quickly, attacking first the youth of the village and making them the devil's children. Ralph, look, look. Oh, God, I prayed I'd never see that again. That's what they call the devil's skin. Doctor, witchcraft is dead and discredited. Are you bent on reviving forgotten horrors? How do we know, sir, what is dead? Blood on Satan's claw. Hail, Behemoth, spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Holy Behemoth, father of my life, speak now, come now, rise now from the forest, from the fa- And symbolically, we see such sacrifices played out over and over again when, for example, a prime minister is voted out of office. The right-wing mass media leading us to believe that this is some sort of ceremonial blood transfusion. But it isn't. As a country, as a collection of countries, we're actually dying, rotting on a throne like a Francis Bacon painting. There's a sense that maybe a certain vitality or a certain form of British preeminence is now slipping away. And in that, all sorts of other alternative forms of social organisation could come to the fore. And as well as this, I think decolonisation is extremely important. No longer is weirdness and foreignness located in far-flung places across the rest of the world, but actually within the British Isles itself. Perhaps we're actually forced to look at ourselves now that we're no longer an imperial power. This is the same kind of time that E.P. Thompson was talking about the rise of the English working class, a book which in particular is about the decline of handicraft, artisanal uh, trades and ways of life, the very things that folk horror is particularly interested in. Tom Nairn was writing about the breakup of Britain, and one of the articles, one of the chapters in the book um, that we've just co-edited by Beth Carroll is about the uncomfortable position that Celtic cultures play within a broader understanding of Britain. And it draws attention to how many folk horrors are set, for example, in Wales, in Cornwall and in Scotland. So while Tom Nairn was writing at the end of the 1970s about a future breakup of Britain, in some ways we can see folk horror already in the decade prior to that, kind of anticipating this notion. John Berger, the Marxist art critic, had caused a scandal with his television show from 1972, Ways of Seeing, where he demythologizes landscape painting by showing the ways that it actually asserts the dominance of a landholding class as being beautiful and as being part of nature, rather than the actual violent social process of enclosures and pauperization that it really was. So there's a very similar demythologizing impulse there in the films of folk horror, which, as I say, on the one hand, can be related to the counterculture of the late 1960s or a sense that society in general um, is perhaps falling apart or disintegrating. There's a great deal of disorder 
and maybe folk horror is a fear of that sort of disorder, but underlying it even further, a more relativized place uh, and understanding Britain's own place within history, a recognition of the violence um, that forms British uh, history, and uh, perhaps also a certain insecurity about what exactly Britain's future might be. It's such an all-encompassing and deeply involving film genre. For those who wish to investigate further, as well as your book, what would you recommend? Any of your listeners who are fans of the genre might have seen the recent documentary Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which is a three-hour long documentary that sprawls across a hundred years of film history from one part of the globe to another, and seems to pretty much cover everything that it possibly can do with any kind of sense of strangeness that might be attached to prior or rural beliefs and ways of life. And in conclusion, Louis, how would you personally sum up British folk horror? So I would say ultimately it speaks to a certain confusion about who we are as a society and where we're going. I don't think that there's the same kind of faith in progress that there was in the Victorian era or in the middle of the 20th century. And so folk horror speaks to a certain fear and an anxiety about social change, but without progress. Where are we going as a nation, as a people, as a class? What is there left for us to believe in? I couldn't have put it better myself, Louis. It's been an absolute pleasure. This has been the UK Desk for Prairie Miller's Arts Express with Dr Louis Bayman, co-editor with Professor Kevin Donnelly of Folk Horror on Film which is currently available through the Manchester University Press website. Cheers. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.